I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Levin. I'm a grief therapist and the founder of From Grief to Growth, the host of the podcast Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death, and I'm the creator and author of the Growing After Traumatic Loss course. I provide support, guidance, and teachings to help you with the aftermath of chaos, trauma, and grief. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. Today's podcast is anonymous, and it's an interview with a young woman who experienced the death of her partner from alcoholism and related causes. According to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, more than 140,000 people died each year from alcohol-related causes in the years 2015 through 2019. The CDC further estimates that alcoholism can shorten a life by 26 years. If you live with someone who's addicted to alcohol, or any other substance for that matter, you know how difficult the daily life struggle can be, but you're still unprepared for the struggle that can accompany the pain associated with a sudden death from alcohol-related causes. I invite you now to listen to our guest today, who shares the sudden experience she had after her partner suddenly died from alcohol-related causes. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your partner. When did you first meet and how long were you together? So we met in March of 2018 um, through a dating app. And we were together for about four years before he passed. Um, but yeah, we met in the spring of 2018 and we hit it off pretty quickly. Uh, the first time we met in person, we talked a little bit first over the phone. And then the first time meeting in person, we, um, we were in a restaurant and we stayed there until the restaurant closed around three. We stayed there until closing. It was like seven hours of just talking. Um, and he was a very, very chatty person. I always teased him about that. So, and I can talk a lot too. So we, um, we never had, we never ran out of things to say, put it like that. And yeah, he was just my, like the male version of me, just like really, really my best friend. Sounds like it was a perfect fit. It was. Yeah. So you talked about your first date and what an amazing fit the two of you are. And you had a relationship um, that obviously started after that. Um, We've had some conversations and you shared that your partner had an alcohol problem that went on throughout your relationship. And I know that you've shared that um, he had many health problems that existed um, and even scares, health scares. But tell us a little bit about what happened and the incident um, that actually led to his, um, to his sudden death. Yeah, well, 
So I moved, we both lived in Chicago together. Um, I moved back to LA in June, 2021. So about three and a half years um, since we first started dating. And I moved back to LA because my mom is sick. Um, so I came back to to help take care of her. And during that time, I noticed he physically started looking more and more sick. Um, his eyes were becoming even more yellow and he looked really emaciated. So I knew something bad was on the horizon. Um, and like you mentioned, there had been a lot of health scares. So the day that he passed, it was actually his daughter's sixth birthday. So I texted him and I sent him a voice note telling him, you know, please tell your daughter happy birthday for me because um, we were really close and he never responded. But we had a routine where we would talk every morning um, on my way to Starbucks. And so I knew something wasn't right, but I told myself like, you know, you have anxiety. It's probably just anxiety. Just ignore it. So I went on with my day. I went to the gym and I came back and I still hadn't heard from him. And I knew something was wrong. And so I get a call from his best friend. And right as the phone rings, I told myself, like, this is it. Like, this is the call telling me that he's gone. Um, and his best friend told me that he was actually in the hospital. His best friend lived in a different state, but had heard from another friend that he was in the hospital on life support and they didn't think he was going to make it. And um, I was shocked, but at the same time, it's almost as if I had been preparing myself for that moment. And he essentially what happened was he started internal bleeding, but also essentially his esophagus burst. And that's why he went to the hospital and he took himself to the hospital or he called the, the ambulance himself, which to me was a big sign that it was bad because he never wanted to go to the hospital. So the fact that he called the ambulance himself, I knew it was really bad. And so the, by the time I heard what had happened, he was already essentially gone for all, he was gone for all intents and purposes. He was still breathing, but he was on life support, but he couldn't talk, couldn't hear. He just was out of it. Um, he was dying. Um, and I never got to say goodbye to him. Uh, the friend that was with him at the hospital gave me the phone and let me talk to him. And I like to believe that he heard me say goodbye to him, but medically, I'm pretty sure he didn't hear me. Um, and he, his blood pressure kept decreasing and they told us that, you know, he's not going to make it. He's not going to come back from this. Um, so he essentially, I think on the death certificate, it says something about hemorrhaging. Um, and he died from just bleeding. Um, the He had cirrhosis of the liver. So you never really got the opportunity to say goodbye. Yeah, no, I never... Yeah, I never got the opportunity to say goodbye, at least not the way that I wanted to. Um, I remember the last time I saw him alive in person when I got in the Uber and he walked down with me and put me in the Uber and 
gave me a kiss and said, I'll see you in August. The plan was for him to come visit in August. That never happened um, because of financial reasons. But I remember seeing him from the Uber window walk around the block and something told me that like, this might be the last time you see him. And it was that voice that I always tried to quiet and tell myself like, no, you have to have hope. You have to believe that he will get better, that he will beat this, that there's going to be a change and you're going to have a life together. And that, yeah, that never happened. And so I never got to say goodbye to him the way that I wanted to. I mean, I, I think I said goodbye to him, like our spirit said goodbye to each other, but not like our bodies. Yeah. I know we didn't really get a chance to go into what it's like to live with somebody who's living with an addiction and for you living with an addiction. But it sounds like you had considered the fact that he might die from this suddenly at some point in your relationship. Yeah, I would say he suffered from, because of the alcoholism, the doctor could never understand it, but he started getting seizures. And that was the first time, the first seizure happened maybe six months into our relationship. And then they continued about, the next one didn't happen for a year. And then the last year I was there, it happened about once a month, sometimes even twice a month. And so there was a point, the day that he had a seizure twice in the same day. I, he had a seizure. I took him to the, the, I called the ambulance. They took him to the hospital. They called me, said he's ready to be picked up. I went and picked him up. And as he opened the door to get into the car, he had another seizure and fell on the concrete and cracked his head open and blood everywhere. Um, and I, I think it was that day that I told myself, I think he's going to die. Uh, and that was about a year before he died. And I remember finally admitting it to my best friend and telling her, like, I think he's going to die. And it was really hard for me to admit that because it's this feeling of no longer having control. Because I thought, I really, really genuinely believed that if I just, I need, it was just like a puzzle I needed to figure out. And I just needed to fight the right piece, find the right piece to fix the problem. And I think that day I finally admitted to myself that I don't think I have the ability to fix this problem and this might be out of my hands and it, and it was. And so that was the day. And, and, and even though I admitted it to myself that day that I think he's going to die, I kind of pushed that deep down in me and the next, the, throughout the next year, I mean, when I think back on it, I think I was in major denial major denial about the extent of his illness um because i i you know what are you supposed to do right and 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 part of the addiction is it's almost like you're living in an alternate reality because you're seeing what's happening to him but he's not seeing what's happening to him so you're frantic and you're trying to guide him in a certain path and he's in his own denial and just in a completely different reality. And he thinks it's not a big deal, he's fine. 
he just needs to take this medicine and everything will be okay. So it was also just hard to, we just weren't on the same page. It's hard to be on the same page with someone with an addiction. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. So this is actually uh, the very first time I've done an anonymous podcast interview with anyone before. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you wanted your interview to be anonymous? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, there's several reasons. First, um, to protect his privacy because you know, there's a lot of stigma that goes um, along with alcoholism. And I know his parents are very sensitive to that fact. And they really, I mean, till this day, they haven't really even told their entire family about his passing. And I think that has to do with the way he died. So I wanted to respect their privacy. Um, and for me, my relationship with him, my I come from a very conservative, religiously conservative family. So my family, my parents in particular, never knew about our relationship. And I didn't want them finding out this way over a podcast, um, especially because now that I'm uh, in the beginning of my career um, in academia, there's a lot of like public facing um, there's just you're in the public a lot, and I didn't want anyone to kind of Google my name and then see that, and then my parents finding out. Like, there's there's just unfortunately a lot of secrecy, and then um, I'm I've been working through the stigma, uh, both a stigma that's assigned to him, and also a stigma assigned to myself regarding being in a relationship with someone who is an alcoholic. So there's a lot of, I still feel the need to protect a lot of things, especially the relationship. And so I wanted to tell the story. I wanted people to hear about him and what he was like and what my grief has been, but I wanted to do it in a way where I felt I was respecting all parties involved. So what was your grief like? early on, right after he died? Ooh, so the first day, the day that he died, um, I when, when I first got the call saying he was on life support, I called my sister. I was alone and I just needed someone to be around me. I didn't, it's almost like I felt outside of my body and like I couldn't keep my body up. Like I really, I felt it it was very physical. The grief was very physical in the beginning. Um, I called my sister. She called my brother. They both came. And then once I, I, I went to sleep, I, I knew he was dying. Once I got all the information that I could get and I got off the phone, I just said, I need to go to sleep. Like I need to, like my body just shut down. And I was, well, I was, uh, I woke up because there was, I got another call and it was the best friend saying that he was gone. And I just, it was one of the worst days of my life. It's a, a feeling I, I really 
genuinely can't describe. It was very physical. I felt um, like I was outside of my body and I felt like I was outside of my own life looking down on me and just completely confused. I didn't really cry that much. I cried and then I would stop and I was like genuinely confused and this feeling of like, I almost didn't accept it. I was like, no, I, I need to talk to him. Like I need to tell him what's going on. I need to tell him how sad I am. And then realizing like, that's it. There's no, there's no more talking to him in the way that you talk to him. I, I, I believe now a year and a half later that I can still talk to him. But that day I didn't understand that I can't talk to him the way I, I had known, in the way I had known. And it, uh, I couldn't be alone. I was extremely, I was frantic is the best. It's like, I'm not sure what I was scared of at that point, but it was like, I almost became more scared after he had passed than I was hearing that he was about to pass. It was like after he passed, the permanency. I've been really struggling with the permanency of death. And so once it happened, I, it was a mixture of like, how can this be possible? And also like, this can't be it. Like I have to figure something out. I, I, I'm a doer, I'm a problem solver. And so I, it was this feeling of being completely out of control and not understanding how, I can't fix this problem. Um, yeah. And, and so the beginning was definitely very, very physical for me. Yeah. I can hear that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 it still gets physical. The grief is still physical in some ways a year and a half later, but there's, it's definitely changed. Um, I don't feel that, I don't feel the franticness of it anymore. Um, it still hurts, you know, just as bad, but it's, it's almost like my body has learned what it means for him not to be here. And so there's a familiarity in his death now that there wasn't there in the beginning, um, but yeah, it can still definitely be physical, but I think I've also learned ways to help me cope, like healthy ways to help me cope. Um, whether that's, uh, for me, it's, it's usually doing something involving my grief, not running away from my grief. So I'll pick up a book about grief and I just want to read about someone else's grief. I want to feel like I'm not crazy. These thoughts in my head, because the thoughts in my head, like, it's like I, my mind was, my mind generally runs a mile a minute, but this was like out of control and I couldn't, my thoughts were scattered. I couldn't put them together. And that lasted for a good like six months of just being really unable to think, to process information, to remember things. My memory was gone. And so I think I've learned ways now to kind of slow down the mind and become more in touch with my body um, and not have that kind of disconnect between 
my mind and my body. And yeah, like I said, reading for me, reading books about grief was a big way that I coped. I just wanted to, I wanted to see a reflection of my grief back at me to, to understand it better. And, you know, people grieve in so many different ways. So I read a lot of different books, fiction, nonfiction. Um, and I even read, you know, books about, I was questioning my faith and questioning God and, you know, I was angry at God. And so I even read books about how grief impacts your faith. I just wanted to not feel alone in my grief. Yeah. Out of curiosity, was there any type of relief at all after his death? I mean, it sounds like there was so much suffering on his end. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And the short answer is yes, but that took me well over a year to admit. I could not admit that to myself, that there was a sense of relief. The relief, it it was both relief for him that he's no longer suffering because he was not living a life. He was not living. Even when he was alive, he was not living a life. And so there was relief to know that his suffering is over. And then it's still hard for me today to admit this, but there was a relief for me that I didn't have to live in fear anymore because I lived in extreme, extreme fear every single day, especially because of the seizures, um, where I, at any moment, he could be at any moment, he could be having a seizure. And living with him, I became extremely hypervigilant, where anytime I would hear a sound, I would think, did he fall? And he's having a seizure. I couldn't take a shower without having to literally get out of the shower, soaking wet, naked, run into the living room because I heard something and he would be on the couch and be like, what's going on? And I was, I almost became embarrassed at the level of fear that I was operating within. So like I said, it, it it's hard for me to admit it, but there was a fear, I, I'm sorry, there was a relief in knowing that I didn't have to be so hypervigilant anymore and just live in constant fear. Like the worst that could happen, what I had been preparing myself for had happened. And there is a relief in knowing that like the worst is over. As hard as that is to say, because that means he's not here. It, you know, and, and I think people who, people who love other people who are addicted, who have an addiction, they can understand. I think other people who, who've never dealt with addiction, it might seem selfish. It might seem, you know, just, they might be perplexed by like, how could you say that? But I think people who've dealt with loved ones who have an addiction, I hope it resonates with them that like it, there's, I'm working through the guilt still of, of feeling that way, but yeah, there definitely was a sense of relief that, and it wasn't that I felt like I could start my life now. It wasn't that kind of relief. It was like, I could, there was a sense of peace that I could 
hold on to now that yeah just the worst is over and and I mean it was scary too because now I'm like I have to rebuild my life and I don't I don't know how and I don't want to um and something that for me I really experienced was for a long time I didn't want to let go of my grief because I thought if I let go of my grief then I would lose him and the grief was now the only thing attaching me to him so I helped held on for dear life for my grief. And even through therapy, I was almost actively fighting. I mean, I think subconsciously actively fighting, uh, you know, working through the grief because I, I wanted to, that, that was my, that was my only connection to him. So. Can you say more about that? Um, so actually, before you do, I'm so glad you talked about the relief because I've worked with so many clients who've had loved ones struggling with the addiction and they've actually used the word peace um, Mm -hmm. and that there is some peace that the awfulness and the struggle is over Um, and there's definitely you know no celebration um, but there's some just peace Um, that the suffering is over. But if you can say more about this letting go or working on letting go of the grief, because there's so many people that I work with who hold steadfast to their grief as the only way they can possibly stay connected to their loved one um, and fearful that there's no other possibility to remain connected. Right. Yeah, I think the way we, even I think in like in popular culture and just the way we've been socialized is this idea of, you know, love and even the kind of quotes that exist about grief that, you know, grief is really just love in like a different form. And so I, I really, and then experiencing it firsthand, I, I'll backtrack for a second and say in the beginning, I felt guilty laughing. I felt guilt. I remember the first time I smiled and the first time I laughed after he died and I had a hard time forgiving myself or even being able to laugh and smile despite his death. And all of that was related to me believing that my love for him is now trapped in this grief. And if I let go of the grief, then I'm letting go of him. And grieving was my way of honoring him. And if I stopped grieving, or even if the grief changed, it means like, how could you, I would ask myself, like, how could you, you can't move on. You can't. And, and, and I, I haven't moved on and I'll never move on. I don't even like that phrase, but even just moving forward, just life continuing. I really believed that I was being disloyal to him. So many people share that. Yeah. And it, 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 it still pops up every now and then. Um, because I, I told myself even just like little rituals that I started after he passed, like kissing his urn before when I woke up and when I went to sleep and every night I would play 
his favorite song to help me sleep. And when those rituals, they didn't end, but they, maybe I did them less often or I didn't rely on them in the same way I did for the first like six, seven months. I, I was scared. I was like, this is, this is me, you know, again, being disloyal and not honoring him. And am I saying I didn't love him? And I even would question myself, like, how did I love him? How could I, how could I possibly move on if you loved someone? Like, you can't move on. I almost had to punish myself for, for living, like, in a, in a strange way, not, I wouldn't call it necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily call it survivor's guilt, but there was an element of, I cannot live if he is not living. Mm -hmm. like my life must be over it has to be over I cannot live anymore and the truth is there were a lot of suicidal passive suicidal ideations but it was really more what it really was was me punishing myself anytime there was a moment where he wasn't on my mind and and yeah I, I I didn't learn until later ways that I can keep him in my life, keep his spirit, keep his humor, his his intellect, his just who he was. I can keep that in my life without it being a like without it being a trap like I felt trapped in my own grief I think that's the best way to describe it I I felt trapped in my own grief and I thought grief can only look one way mm -hmm. I thought this is what grief looks like and if I'm not doing these things if I'm not crying every day I remember the first day I didn't cry and I had therapy that day and I cried in therapy about not crying about him and I thought, yeah, grief can only look this way. And if I am operating in any way outside of this, these parameters, then that means I am disloyal. I didn't really love him as much as I said I did. I just questioned everything. So it took, and, and, and again, I mean, it's, I think grief is going to be a lifelong, a lifelong journey, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to like traumatic loss. And, and I also just didn't understand. I was 32 at the time and my parents had gotten married at 32. And so for me, I always thought, you know, 32 was the age when I'm going to really start settling down and having a family and getting married and then to have to lose a partner in such a traumatic way. I, I just couldn't understand the just what was happening in life I couldn't I couldn't make sense of it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sounds like your grief has evolved incredibly in the yeah. last year and a half what yeah. have, what have you done what type of work have you engaged in to experience these types of shifts 
So I have really worked really hard on my grief. I've tried pretty much everything I could possibly get my hands on. So I um, started seeing a grief therapist, a therapist who specifically uh, specializes in grief. And then um, I started a, a small group, a traumatic sudden loss grief group. And uh, that was weekly. My therapy was weekly, sometimes twice a week. Um, I joined a grief community online uh, where people would just write just blogs about their loved ones. Then I joined another kind of like one month writing program. It was a grief writing program where every day for 30 days we had a prompt and we would write about we would kind of answer the prompt. There's no rules, but you're essentially writing about your grief and whatever comes up. Uh, so I did that. I, um, like I said, I read a lot of books about grief. Um, I uh, talked a lot about him to the people that knew about the relationship, which were only really a couple of people. Um, but I tried to I thought that the more I talk about him, the more I'm keeping him alive, which now I don't necessarily, it's not that I don't believe that. I think if it works for you, that's great. But for me, I found that I was getting stuck. That's where I was stuck in my grief. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a lot of a lot of therapy. I mean, I'm still in grief therapy to, to this day. Um, so a lot of therapy, a lot of reading, a lot of community building, and just finding spaces where, especially because my grief, my therapist calls it disenfranchised grief, because my parents didn't know about him. Um, most of my family didn't know about him. Friends didn't know about him. I was grieving kind of silently and I had to pretend like everything was fine. You know, I would be crying in my car and then I get to my mom's house and I have to pretend like it's just another Saturday and I'm, you know, living life and the sun is shining, but really I'm, I'm broken inside. And so I, uh, yeah, I, I did, I did. Oh, and another thing I did, I, I joined um, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Al-Anon. Mm -hmm. So for the family and friends of people who suffer from alcoholism, that for me didn't resonate as much. I feel like if I had started that maybe a few years before he passed, it would have been really helpful. But after he passed, it felt to me personally a little bit like too little too late. Um, so I found what really helped me was the therapy and the community building. Okay. You've talked about your mom a bit and that she's actively dying and has been sick for a long time. So you're grieving your partner. Your family doesn't know about him due to religious reasons and other things. What's that been like for you? It's been really hard. There's been a lot of grief in my life the last eight years, um, a lot of grief. And I, there's, there's almost like in my head, the grief competition where I had to be more sad about my mom 
dying in her condition than this guy who was an alcoholic that I met, you know, four years ago. But there were times that things would come up that I ended up feeling that way. Like I had to, it's almost like I had to prove I'm sad about my mom while I'm grieving my partner. Um, So there was a lot of kind of like shifting back and forth and trying to make sense of, you know, grieving someone who's gone and grieving someone who's still here. And those two things look very differently. And the way that I respond to them is also very different. Um, and and again, like I said earlier, the the permanency of death is really what I've struggled with. And I've just had a lot of these existential questions about what is life and why are we here and what am I doing and what happens after you die? So those questions have impacted the way I view my mom and her disease. And so I yeah, it was, it's just, it's been, yeah, I would say just a grief competition, just who, like, who deserves my sadness more? It it was almost like grief, grief just feels so personal and so incredibly intimate that it's, it's almost like, it felt like cheating on someone like I'm either cheating on my mom or I'm cheating on my partner if I'm grieving one instead of the other it almost felt like I can't do both at the same time um and yeah it it definitely has also impacted the way that I look at my mom spend time with my mom talk to my mom trying to come to a level of acceptance with my relationship with my mom. There's things that I've never said to my mom that I know I, at this point, I'm not gonna be able to say, she's not gonna be able to really respond to it and really hear what I have to say about our relationship. And so I'm trying to accept her death before it happens in a way that I was very much in denial with my partner. I'm trying to do it differently this time. It's almost like I have a second chance at grief and I'm trying to do it differently this time. And, and not, not for my mom, this sounds bad, but like not for my mom, but for me, have a better relationship with the grief process for myself. Because again, that peace, I mean, grief really attacks your peace. And addiction attacks your peace and actively dying and chronic disease attacks your peace. And so I'm really trying ways to find peace while my mom is still alive. Um, And I really only learned that through my partner's passing. I will say that his passing has taught me an incredible amount about living life in a way where I feel most authentic and like it, it, it's hard to explain, but it's like his death started me setting boundaries for the first time in my life. And me like 
I, I guess the best way to say it is his death was the absolute worst thing that could happen to me that I was like, I don't have anything to lose anymore. So all this people pleasing that I did and trying to make my parents proud and do be the daughter that they wanted, even if it wasn't things that I wanted, I was like, it's not worth it. Like, and it's not even, you know, oh, life is too short. It wasn't even about life is too short. It was just about like the worst has happened. All this other stuff I fear in life doesn't compare. Like I am so incredibly devastated that like, if I can't please you right now, that is now your problem and it's no longer my problem. It was almost like the grief took up all the space inside of me. It, it took all the capacity I had. And so all these other things, I suffer from chronic anxiety. Um, and so I, it was almost like there was no room for the anxiety regarding my family and my parents and school and work and siblings and friendships. It was like, this, this is all I have. If you can't accept it, then we're going to have to make peace with that and, and, and move forward because the grief, it took up all the space inside of me. So in a way it really did teach me a lot about living life on my terms and just accepting just accepting life. I have a hard time just accepting my reality. And so it's really helped me to begin that process of accepting my reality, regardless of if it's what I want or not. Really powerful lessons learned there. Yeah. So I want to end today with the question that I ask um, everybody, which is if you were giving advice to someone who was brand new in this situation, and especially somebody who has just experienced the sudden death of a loved one by alcoholism or any type of addiction, what would you say to them? I think I would say two things. I would say first, try whatever you can. It's like, try, try again in terms of learning how to live with the grief. And, and really accepting the fact that you will be living with grief, that there's no getting rid of it. That this idea that we have to move on or move forward or get rid of it and be strong. Like if you are dealing with grief, you are, you are strong. Like there's no other way to put it. Um, and so trying whatever you possibly can, trying different, like, like I said, I tried books, I tried therapy, whatever feels right at that time give it a try if it's not right try something else but don't stop trying to find ways to relate to your grief in a way that feels right to you and that goes to my second point where you're going to be getting a lot of unsolicited advice from people and really try hard to give yourself grace tune that stuff out and just kind of check in with yourself and say like, is this advice, does this resonate? If it does, great. If not, you know, move on and, and, and be and be honest and say, no, thank you. You, you, you don't understand. Um, I don't want to talk about this and just really advocate for yourself and don't buy into this culture. I think we have a really unhealthy culture surrounding grief where if you're somehow, if you're sad, 
from grief, you're weak. And I mean, that's just really, I think it's inaccurate, but it's also just harsh. And so I can give yourself grace and there's no, there's no guidebook, there's no rule book and there's no timeline. You just, every, it's like really every moment you're trying to figure out what is going to work for you in this moment. And it might look different. It might change from day to day, from week to week, but it's like, it's really just checking in with yourself. And it, it's almost like I, I had to wrap myself in my own blanket for the first time and just trust myself and trust what felt right to me and there there's also going to be relationships that you have to let go of unfortunately because either they don't show up for you the way that you need them to or they're making you feel worse and so really just wrapping yourself in your own blanket and centering yourself and and just trying to really live in a way where you feel like your grief is being honored and it it just feels right to you, regardless of, of what everyone else, all the comments and advice that everyone else has. Wow. Thank you so much. What great insight today. Um, I know you shared so much from the heart um, so much personally, um, so much in terms of your growth and your struggles, um, insight. So appreciative. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I had the privilege to work with today's guest in one of my traumatic grief groups many, many months ago. I was so moved throughout this interview to hear her acknowledge the growth and insight she has gained throughout her grief. In her story today, she addressed both the pain she lived with while she was dating her partner and after the death, which is something so unique to addiction and sometimes accompanies mental illness when a suicide happens from this reason. After time had passed, she talked about allowing herself to recognize that she did feel relief and some peace for herself and her partner because he was no longer suffering and she did not have to live with the trauma of addiction and she was no longer constantly alert and waiting for the next problem to occur. Perhaps one of her greatest breakthroughs was in her ability to find a new way to stay connected to her partner today, even in his death. In the interview, we discussed how so many people struggle with the inability to let go of their connections to loved ones in their pain. There seems to be a need to guard and hold on to the pain associated with grieving loved ones. Many people are not able to transition from what our interviewee called this preconceived notion of grief 
or what seems to be these chains of pain. And we're not able to find new ways to relate or connect with loved ones and experience joy or find happiness again in life. Our interviewee talked about ways that she was able to do that. She knows her partner wants her to be happy again. If you want an opportunity to connect with today's guest, please join our Facebook group talking about the podcast Untethered with Dr. Levin. Post a question or a message and we'll get it to her and facilitate any communication you would like to have with her. There's also resources posted for anyone living with a loved one struggling with alcoholism, or if you need support for yourself for a loved one who has alcohol problems. Our next episode will be on Wednesday, March 29th, and it's also going to be anonymous in nature. I'm going to interview a woman whose son died suddenly from COVID. Thank you so much for joining today's episode of Untethered, Healing the Pain After a Sudden Death. For help with a sudden or unexpected loss, please sign up for my free mini course, where I'll teach you about the three truths about living with a sudden or unexpected loss. Please visit my website, www.fromgrieftogrowth.com. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For help with a sudden and unexpected loss, sign up for my free mini course where I will teach you the three truths about living with a sudden and unexpected loss. Please visit www.fromgrieftogrowth.com to sign up.